0: Again, Blackman Baptist Church, we're going to be in John 5 again today. Uh, we Well, yeah, again today, we were in John 5 for Sunday school. So for those of you that were in Sunday school, you're one step ahead. You know where we're headed. Um, but the way the chapter split up, the first part of it is kind of a narrative of what happened and the second part is Jesus explaining what this means. And uh, the second part of John 5 is all red letters. And that's what's where I hope to spend the bulk of the time today. Um, so we'll be, we'll be looking at that. As we've been making our way through these Gospel passages, we, we see this repeated pattern. Um, that Jesus, when He does miracles, they're called signs. Very often they're called signs. Um, and that has a different meaning because the miracle itself is solving a particular problem in a particular place for a particular person. But Jesus looks at it as a sign. That there's a significance beyond the local and the immediate to what is happening. Um, So when Jesus gives sight to a blind person or when He drives out a demon or cleanses leprosy or even raises a dead child, these things are good. They're even great things, actually. They're kind and they reveal Jesus' heart for healing and restoration. But ultimately, they're temporary and their real value is as a sign. We talked briefly this morning just at the end of chapter 4 Uh, this man came up to Jesus to ask Him to heal his son. And Jesus' response to him is, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The man wasn't asking for a sign and a wonder. He was asking for his son to be healed. But it shows you the difference in how Jesus views this reality and how we view it. We're looking for something immediate, temporal. Right now, I want a solution to my immediate problem. My son's dying. And Jesus says, "Ah, the bigger picture here." is that you want to sign so that you can believe. Jesus understands the the most important thing. Now, Jesus came into the world with real power. But He didn't didn't come in to set about healing every single leper that He encountered. He didn't raise every dead child. That would have been kind and generous, but His mission was bigger than that. So today we're going to be talking about that. I'm going to talk about a healing, a revealing, and an uphealing. I made it rhyme. (laughs) <laughs> uh, one of uh, one of our dear friends, uh, Bob Weiss is uh, he's been in BSF with me for a long time, and there's nobody that alliterates like Bob Weiss um, And there's a there's a T-shirt I've seen online that says alliteration is alarmingly addictive. Um, I think it would be appropriate for for those of us who enjoy rhyming and alliteration. But anyway, to set the stage, so. We're going to start off with the first, I'm not going to read, I want to actually deal with most of the text of the chapter today, but I'm not going to read it all up front. I timed that and it was going to take quite a while and I want to make sure that we can focus on the, the particulars as we go. Um, so I'm going to start off with uh, John 5, chapter 1 through 9 to begin with. Um, and then we'll, then we'll pray and jump in. Hear the word of the Lord from John 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first had the stirring of the water after the stirring of the water, was healed of whatever disease he had. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah. Let's pray. Father, uh, I pray that you bless the reading of your word. I pray that, that your word will uh, enter into our minds and hearts. Father, this, uh, this word that you've given is a two-edged sword, and it divides the truth. It shows us, it shows us our sin, and it shows us your holiness. Father, help us to see it. Help us to see you for it, for you who you are, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, this came up in Sunday school, and it's worth mentioning. I don't like to usually spend a lot of time talking about texts and sources and things, but this verse, the end of verse three, and the, and the whole of verse four is not in all of the texts, and that's why there's some. We had an interesting conversation about that in Sunday school. About well, well, what's the deal with the water? Um, because verse four. For the sources where it occurs says that an angel comes and stirs the water, uh, but then not all the sources have it, so some of the more conservative inter- uh, some of the more conservative translations just leave that verse out and leave a footnote so that you can know the full context. The point I want to make from all that is it doesn't really matter to the whole point of what we're talking about it doesn't change anything about what's going on here. The man clearly did expect that the waters might be miraculously stirred and that he would have the opportunity to be healed. But it doesn't really change what Jesus did. Jesus didn't depend on whatever is happening in the waters or not happening in the waters. Jesus has his own power that he brought to the table. So so as we were talking about the miracles and the signs, we've been seeing this pattern time and again as as we walk through the Gospels. And what does Jesus do? He walks into a situation, and then he uses the situation to demonstrate his identity and his mission. And and John tells us that this area near the pool had a multitude of individuals or of invalids of all kinds. A multitude—that's a crowd. That's a bunch of people of all kinds of problems. And their understanding, whatever our understanding is, their understanding was that when the when the pool stirs, the first one in gets a blessing, a healing, and that's what their expectation was. So they were crowded around this pool. Um, And if you think about this, out of all these poor, suffering candidates for healing, Jesus walks up to this crowd and He picked out one man. picked out this lame man. He came upon this beggar who had been lame for 38 years. Now think about this, because Jesus is 30 or 31 at this point. right? So the man has literally been lame and disabled for longer than Jesus has been on this earth. And so Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? What an interesting question. Strange question. Would he spend his days waiting at this pool in frustration if he didn't want to be healed. But Jesus doesn't always ask for information. We know that. Not for his information. But the man's response tells us a couple things about him. He believed the pool could cure him, and it was worth waiting for. So he's there, even if the opportunity is unlikely because everyone else moves faster than he does. He's going to stick around and give it a shot. We also know that he was lonely, and he had no one to help him. The other invalids could move more quickly than him and they could reach the pool to claim the blessing before he could do it. But he also had a plan because as soon as Jesus, as soon as Jesus acknowledged him and asked him, he, he was ready with the plan, right? He says, well, no one, I don't have anyone to help me. He's basically implicitly saying, but since you asked, you could help me now, right? You could help me into this pool. And the fourth thing we know about him is he had no idea who he was talking to, Right? He had no idea. Because he's thinking, ah, this a friendly stranger. Maybe he can help me into the pool. Maybe he's fast enough to beat the the joker next to me that's got the, the bad arm. But no, he's talking to the Son of God. So something amazing happens at this point. Jesus did not ask him for a profession of faith. He didn't ask him for a commitment, an agreement. He didn't ask this man for anything. He just said, get up, take your bed, and walk very simple but when jesus speaks he speaks with authority he speaks with the power of the voice of god and like weston was saying in sunday school that voice alone carries the power right he healed the man instantly and what did the man do he obeyed because now he could obey a moment before he could not have stood up and walked now he can and he does So we see this healing followed immediately by obedience. No considering, no questioning. He got up, took his bed, and he walked. This is our setup. What do we learn from this beggar before we dive into the red letters? What do we learn from this man? Well, I would say we can be patient. We can be patient like he was and not bitter. He may have been frustrated, but he did not voice bitterness. And we should expect a healing, even if we have to wait a long time. This man waited 38 years. And he didn't seem to have much earthly reason for hope, really, at this point. But he didn't give up. He was still coming. And when Jesus came, he was ready to obey. He was ready on the spot to obey. What else can we learn? Go with Jesus' plan, right? It may be different than what you expect. This man wanted Jesus to sit with him and be ready to help him into the pool. That was his best idea, right? Because... Hey, I'm here. There's a miraculous pool. You could help me. But Jesus had a much better idea. And Jesus had the power to execute His idea. So I would ask you, what situation in your life have you figured out exactly what is needed when Jesus has a different and better plan? Is there, is there some control that you crave, but you need to let it go so that you can get a greater blessing from Jesus? He's got a better plan. He knows what you need. So if you're praying to Jesus, I've got this all figured out, Jesus. i got a plan. I need you to do this and this and this. And will this all be worked out? No. He knows better than you. Right? And He has the power. Ask Him what His plan is. And be ready. Be ready to obey when He says, get up. Walk. So we've talked a little bit about the healing and we talked about that in Sunday school. Now I want to get into what it means. What does Jesus think about this? This is the revealing. Jesus took the healing and used it for a revealing. We're going we're to see like uh, 30 verses, I think, almost, of, of this revelation of who Jesus is and what he's about. But the Jesus, the great physician, he had come to heal and restore. We see that. That's true, but it could be misunderstood, because physicians heal what? The physical body. So the great physician, does he just heal lots of bodies or heal really good? No. He heals completely and totally. He heals spiritually and in every way. He heals creation itself. So we have Jesus coming, but if He only came to heal these physical and mental diseases, He didn't get very far, really, because He's only in one locality in Israel, and even of the people who needed healing in Israel, He only touched a few of them, right? What? Why? Was He inefficient in this process? Did He need Ralph in the business school to come come tighten up his process and teach him how to delegate appropriately? It, you think you would have screwed it up. I know the folks over there at Jones do a good job, but I don't think Jesus needed that kind of help. Right? He did not need a, a coaching session because his point wasn't to heal every person in Israel of their physical problem. Right? These things were signs. He was using the healing as a revealing. He was using it to show by his power who... He truly is, right? By doing these acts, by doing these miracles, He could demonstrate this is who I am. This is a witness to who I am and who I've come from. So follow along in your Bibles because I want to I read some more of the verses here. We'll be looking at verses 15 through 29. And then notice from verse 19 on, the rest of the chapter is read because it's Jesus talking. And I want you to listen. I'm going to say three questions. Just listen for the answers to these questions as we read through here. What does Jesus call Himself in these verses? What does Jesus call God the Father? And what power and authority does Jesus claim to have? And there may be multiple answers to each of those questions. So just uh, get your listening ears on, and let's think about these questions as we walk through here. This is the Word of the Lord from verse 15. It says, The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father's working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him. Because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son... And shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is the word of the Lord. There's a lot here, obviously, a lot. Um, I was trying to prime you with some questions to think about the theology that Jesus is throwing at them here. But we see that Jesus has not only demonstrated His power by healing the man, but He chose to do it on a Sabbath day. That wasn't an accident. Jesus knew the law. He did it on a Sabbath. We talked about that at length in Sunday school. Um, and, and Sam used the word rebel, which I think is interesting because um, in a certain sense, it seemed rebellious that, that Jesus would want to do that on a Sabbath and just provoke all the leaders. But truly, who has the real authority? It was Jesus, right? So who was in rebellion if they're not handling His law right? But that's uh, that's just an interesting aside. Now, the law of Moses says that the Sabbath is, is to be kept holy and no work should be done on the Sabbath. Um, and we, we saw even in the Pentateuch, there was a person actually executed for gathering sticks on the Sabbath. So it was a serious law. Moses supervised that and agreed to it. Um, now over the years, because they wanted to take the law seriously, the scribes and the teachers had established all these rules, all these um, just standards documenting what, what this really meant by don't work. And they came up with 39 categories, 39 categories of work that were prohibited by this tradition. And I, I was going to read the whole list to you, but it gets a little monotonous. And they all end in I-N-G. <laughs> but there are things like carrying, cooking, washing, plowing, planting, building. So anything that is work counts, pretty much. Um, it's kind of hard to think of things that don't fit into one of those categories but jesus did tell the man to get up and pick up his bed and walk now to do that he had to carry right so he's going to have to carry that bedroll. jesus had just told the man to violate these rules fascinating now there was an exception uh, to the sabbath rules you were allowed to break the sabbath in an emergency if you needed to rescue a person or an animal from some uh, dangerous situation and um In the other three three Gospels, we see that uh, Jesus puts it to them very clearly that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, That phrase, Lord of the Sabbath, is not used in John, uh, but it is in all three of the other ones. And and remember, why did Jesus come? He said to seek and save, right? So, one way to look at this is Jesus is is on a rescue mission from heaven. He's on a seven-day-a-week rescue mission. He's not taking Sabbaths off to stop saving. right? So the, the exception for the Sabbath for rescue, Jesus is covered. Blanket policy. Whatever Jesus is doing and whenever He does it, that's what He's here for. He's on a rescue mission. As Jesus puts it in verse 17 also, my Father's working until now, and I am working. So since the fall of Adam and Eve, the rescue, the rescue mission was planned Now it's in full operation. Please also remember who gave the law to Moses. Who do you think has more authority to interpret the law? The scribes or the Son of God? So that all leads Jesus to claim to be the Son of God. He made a bunch of claims in here. I want to kind of walk through some of the claims that He made uh, because they are bold. Kevin mentioned it in Sunday school um, and we'll get there in a second, but He is making bold, bold claims in these red letters. He claims to be the Son of God, Okay, first off, and does the same work that the Father does. So what kind of work does the Father do? And how, how is He like the Father in being the Son? Well, first, how about the power to raise the dead? Because in verse 21, He says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Old Testament speaks of resurrection. The Pharisees believed in a resurrection to come, and they expected it, that God would raise the righteous ones again. And Jesus is saying, yeah, I have that power because I'm the Son of God. I'm the one. And Jesus is actually speaking not of just one kind of resurrection. There's four, there's four kinds of resurrection in view here in just these few verses. Verse 25 talks about a spiritual resurre- resurrection through faith. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And He is saying... Those who come to Me, those who can hear Me and believe will be resurrected spiritually. The physical resurrection hasn't happened yet. Oh, well, for a few people it will come very soon. But Jesus is talking about this, this resurrection that we're dead in our spirits until God's voice comes through and wakes us up and, uh, and resurrects us. And Jesus is claiming to have that power. Verse 26, another kind of resurrection, His own. His own resurrection he's claiming here. And he'll get even more explicit later in in John. But in verse 26, he says, As the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. This really is an amazing thing to say. Only God exists on His own. So all creatures exist in the creation that God has made and sustains. So we depend on God for our life. Really, truly, moment by moment. If He suspends His his sustenance of life for us, we're done in that moment. It's over. But you know what? God has life in Himself. He does not depend on outside support to keep Him alive. He He is eternal. And Jesus is saying He's in that category. That He has life in Himself. Right? As God the Father does. This is a hint that our power to kill Him, our human power to kill Him, is limited by His power to live again. As He puts it in another place in John, I have the authority to lay my life down and I have the authority to pick it up again. So he's, he's hinting here about the power that He has for resurrection of Himself. Verse 28 and 29 talks about the resurrection at the end of days of the dead to eternal life or eternal judgment. He says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So he's saying there's going to be a resurrection and and after that judgment to figure out who goes where. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot more time on that but there's four kinds of resurrections that Jesus is talking about here. The spiritual raising from death. Jesus' own resurrection by his own power and the resurrection of the dead at the end of times. So That's the first thing that Jesus wanted to clarify. Now that I've healed, let me tell you a little bit about myself. Resurrection power. Second thing, Jesus is going to be prepared and expect to either receive honor or rejection on behalf of God the Father. Right? This is a really critical thing. Verse 23 tells us that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. It can't really be overstated how important this is. Jesus is saying here, you can't honor God if you do not honor Jesus because Jesus was sent by God. So we talk about the exclusive claims of Christianity. This is an exclusive claim. Jesus is saying, you cannot honor God unless you honor the one who sent Him and I'm the one that He sent. You have to honor me. He forces us to make a choice. We accept or we reject. This is a hard thing for the Pharisees to hear if you think about it. They're used to telling others how to honor God. And Jesus is now telling them they must honor Him if they are to honor God. Think about that. The people who carry the rules around and have memorized them all and are telling everybody else how to live. Oh, 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 I see you're carrying a bedroll. That's not okay. And now Jesus is coming and saying, oh, you know what? You think you're honoring God? Not if you don't honor me. You're dishonoring God. Those are tough words. And that's a a big mind shift He's asking them to make here. Third, and and again, Jesus is claiming to have the authority to judge. He says, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, and He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. So I ask you, look for what He calls Himself. He calls Himself Son of God. He calls the Father, the Father, and also My Father, which is much more personal. And now He's calling Himself Son of Man. Son of Man is a very specific thing, and it occurs a lot in the Gospels. He refers to Himself a lot by that. It's from the the prophecy of Daniel. The Son of Man is the one who's going to come and establish and rule over an eternal kingdom of justice and righteousness and, and throw out the evil rulers of the world. And Jesus is saying, that's me. That's me. So if you think about all the things that Jesus is claiming to be, He's done this healing, but that's just to get everyone's attention so that He can do the revealing. Yes, I'm the Son of Man. I am the one to come. I'm the one who's going to rule. I am the Son of God. Who You cannot honor God unless you honor Me. And He's saying that I'm the Lord of the Sabbath and I have the power of the resurrection. All these things Jesus is laying on the the Pharisees, in a few short verses. So we talked about this briefly in Sunday school, this, this apologetic argument made by C.S. Lewis, and what a mind he had to, to boil complex things down into simple arguments. But he's saying, Jesus has put us in a position. We have to declare what He is. Do we, do we think that He is a liar, a lunatic, or a lord? That's, that's C.S. Lewis' phrasing. We're basically saying, Jesus said, I'm the Son of God. If it's true, then wow, He's the Lord. And we must worship Him. If it's not true, then we have two choices. We either think that He believed it, and but He's crazy. Or we think that He didn't believe it and He was an evil liar. So we're left with those three choices. The problem is He doesn't, he doesn't behave like an evil uh, liar. In the rest of all of His ministry, there's no evil. And in fact, the Romans when they examine Him, said, I can find nothing wrong with this man. I don't understand why you want to kill him. He hasn't done anything wrong. So he doesn't seem evil. And to his contemporaries, he didn't seem evil. Even when the Jews were putting him on trial, the best they could come up with was to hire people or convince people to say false things against him. That was all. The people who hated him the most had nothing to bring against him. That was valid. And the neutral party, the Romans, they didn't see anything wrong. We don't see him as being evil. We don't see him as being a liar. And he certainly doesn't act like a lunatic either. And so that's our choice, as C.S. Lewis puts it to us. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. And Jesus truly has has made the choice stark. You cannot honor the Father unless you honor me, is what he's saying. Um, He also says here, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, and believes Him who sent me, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So Jesus has said here, to believe Jesus is to believe the Father. Jesus, who has the authority to judge, also says right here, if we believe, we will not be judged. Right? Because He says whoever believes does not come into judgment. He'll pass from death to life. And and He uses the past tense here. That past tense can give us great assurance because if we believe, then we have passed from death to life. And and it's a one-way street. He's not going to say, oh, I'm not sure your faith is very strong today. I'm going to pull you back over that line. That's not how He operates. There are plenty of other Scriptures to, to comfort us in that. When you believe, these things are set. They're accomplished. You are secure. This assurance gives us freedom and it gives us peace. But if we don't honor the Father by believing His Son, there's no, there is no peace. There's only judgment. And third, the appealing. <laughs> so we talked about the healing. We talked about the revealing. And we're going to talk about the appealing. This one might be a little bit of a stretch on the rhyming and alliteration, uh, but I, couldn't, I just couldn't resist it. So please just, just go with me. It's not, a, it's not completely crazy. So, Jesus has shown the healing, used the healing to show who he is. But he's going to use the lame man and the Pharisees to show us who we are. I'm going to read from verses 37 through 47. He says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. He's talking to the Pharisees still. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. And I'm going to skip a few to verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe Me, for he wrote of Me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe My words? So why would I call this an appeal? It sounds like a condemnation. Jesus is telling them they don't believe and their unbelief will condemn them. And this is true. But in verse 40, He says, you refuse to come to Me. And a refusal, doesn't doesn't it imply an invitation? He, he has come from heaven to bring truth, healing, justice, and, his, and restoration. These Pharisees would rather read the Scripture than interact with the person that the Scripture was written about. They would rather read the Scripture than interact with the person the Scripture was written about. Think of this lame man compared to the Pharisees. And I'm sure the Pharisees didn't compare themselves to the lame man at all. But the lame man had been waiting by the pool for 38 years. He put his trust in the ability of the pool to heal him. But it hadn't worked yet. He was waiting passively by the pool for the waters to stir. And even when Jesus, the Lord of life Himself, is standing in front of him, even then, the best He can hope for is Maybe this guy will help me. Maybe he'll help me move into the pool. But Jesus surprised him by healing him on the spot. No pool needed. Like the lame man, the Pharisees were putting their trust in the law and the prophets. They were waiting for someone to come deliver them from Rome because the prophets said that there would be a rescuer. They were studying. They were learning. They were memorizing the Scriptures. They were writing rules and standards to live by in order to honor the Scriptures. And completely missing the point of the scriptures. When they had him right in front of them, they didn't see him. Are you waiting for something like this? Are you looking for a job, a career move, a relationship, some kind of life milestone, some kind of healing like this man? Are you looking for some kind of vindication or rescue like these Pharisees? Do you have the Lord of Life in front of you and are asking you, are you asking him to help you in the pool? Jesus said, come to Me. The Scriptures point to Me. The Father testifies about Me. Choosing the Scriptures over Jesus is like choosing to sit at the well instead of asking for Jesus to heal you. The Scriptures are good. They're they're better than good. But they're about Jesus. And it's Jesus that wants us. And He wants us to want Him in turn. I just have a few more things to close if the music team wants to come up. Um, so if, if you think or are temp, tempted to think sometimes that, that our Christian life is about a set of rules and checklists, avoiding bad behavior, well, you're thinking like a Pharisee. And it's tempting. All of us are tempted by that, especially if we're good at rules. Will you cling to your religion or will you come to Jesus? Jesus wants us to come to Him. He wants us to to seek Him. Are you sitting lame by the pool and telling Jesus how He can fix things by your recipe? You may be surprised how He chooses to fix things, but He has the power. So be ready to say yes when He tells you what to do next. When you come to Scripture, do you come to conquer it? Do you come to control it? Memorize it as an achievement? or, Or to use it to show off to other people or exercise some power over them? Or do you come to the Scripture to let it change you? Let it challenge you? Let it make you uncomfortable? Do you pray to tell God what you need? Or do you pray to ask God what He wants you to do? Do you leave quiet time in your prayers to give Him a chance to answer? Or do you fill all the time with your words so you don't have to give up control? Preaching to me too. Right in today's passage, we have Jesus telling us directly who He is. He is the Son of God. He's the Lord of all. He's the judge. But He also tells us in this passage, He's not the accuser. He came to heal, to restore, to receive God's honor, to bring God's justice, and to take us from death to life. Will you believe Him? That is what He asks. Believe to live. Let's pray. Father, we come to You this morning. We thank You so much for Your Word. But Father, we can't thank You for Your Word more than we thank You for Your Son who came to heal us at the cost of His own life, to to restore us to relationship with You. Father, I pray that we will seek Him more than we seek anything else. And the Scriptures are only a gateway to get to Jesus. They're not a replacement for Him. Father, be with us and lead us. Help us to believe in Jesus' name. Amen.